Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Ukrainian President Zelensky addresses Congress. We consult the senator about how that went ahead on Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. I'm with my buddy Vince Colonnese. And today we've got a very special guest. Vince, who do we have with us? The United States Senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, joins us here on The Daily Caller. Senator, great to talk to you today. Vince, Jason, great to be with you. As we're recording, it is Wednesday morning, and it wasn't uh, too long ago that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky concluded his remarks to the Congress speaking uh, from Ukraine, from Kiev. Uh, and uh, what did you make of his remarks? He it made a pretty impassioned plea yet again for more U.S. support. Uh, he invoked uh, a bunch of meaningful dates and people in American history, things like 9-11, Pearl Harbor, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, and made a pretty strong emotional appeal. How did you take it, sir? I, I thought the address was very strong. I thought it was powerful. Um, I think President Zelensky and I think the Ukrainian people are heroically defending their nation, and, and it's inspiring to watch. Um, I, I will tell you, as, as we sit here today, watching the carnage, watching what's unfolding, which is truly horrific, uh, it is maddening because this was entirely preventable. This war didn't have to happen, and, and it is the direct consequence of two specific political mistakes made by Joe Biden. Number one, last summer, the disastrous withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan and the surrender to the Taliban, the incompetence leaving Americans behind. Every enemy of America, from Russia to China to Iran to North Korea to Venezuela, they looked to Washington, they took the measure of the man in the Oval Office, and, and they concluded tragically that, that, that he is weak and feckless and ineffective. And, and at the time I said, the chances of Russia invading Ukraine have increased tenfold. And the chances of China invading Taiwan have just increased tenfold. That was one of the precipitating causes of this disaster. The second precipitating cause is very specific to Russia and Ukraine, which is that Putin didn't wake up yesterday and decide that, that, that he wanted to invade Ukraine. He's wanted to invade Ukraine for decades. He desires to reassemble the Soviet Union. He did, in fact, invade Ukraine in 2014. He invaded Crimea, the southern portion of Ukraine. But he didn't invade the entirety of the country. And, and the reason he didn't, the reason he stopped, is that Russia's major source of revenue is selling oil and gas. And, and that natural gas goes in pipelines right through the middle of Ukraine. And if he invaded Ukraine, he risks damaging or destroying those pipelines. The next year, 2015, Putin began building a pipeline called Nord Stream 2. And Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline under the Baltic Sea. It runs from Russia to Germany, and it skips Ukraine altogether. And, and the reason Putin wanted to build Ukraine, uh, Nord Stream 2 is so that he could invade Ukraine and not need their pipelines because he could get his gas to market. In 2019, I authored sanctions legislation in the Senate to stop Nord Stream 2, and I got right. overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate. 
overwhelming bipartisan support in the House. President Trump signed that legislation, and, and Putin stopped building Nord Stream 2 literally the day that President Trump signed my sanctions legislation into law. For over a year, the pipeline was dead. It was a hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean until Joe Biden became president. He was sworn in on January 20th. Four days later, Putin resumed deep sea construction of Nord Stream 2. Several months later, Biden formally waived the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, essentially giving Russia and Putin an enormous multi-billion dollar gift, green lighting Nord Stream 2. Putin completed the pipeline. And that is why Russia invaded Ukraine. At the time Biden waived those sanctions, Ukraine publicly said, if you do this, Russia will invade Ukraine. At the time, Poland publicly said, if you do this, Russia will invade Ukraine. You know, just two weeks ago, Zelensky did a video conference call with all the members of Congress. He told us two weeks ago, if the United States had sanctioned Nord Stream 2 last year, Putin would not have invaded Ukraine. And so it's Biden's mistakes that caused this horrific war in Europe. So to clarify, you would have stayed in Afghanistan. Is that, is that your position? No, no, I would not have stayed in Afghanistan, but I would have withdrawn competently and effectively. And doing so, if you look at, at, at what happened in Afghanistan, Biden set a political objective to get out and did so without evacuating Americans, without, for example, Biden abandoned the Bagram airfield mm -hmm. uh, before we'd done an evacuation. If you're doing an evacuation, a secure airfield is critical to doing so. The result of abandoning Bagram meant that we had to do the evacuation from Kabul International Airport, a, a commercial airport in the middle of, of a densely populated urban environment. The Biden administration, as an ideological matter, didn't understand who the Taliban were. You know, throughout that disastrous withdrawal, I, I was having conference calls with the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and they would repeatedly talk about the steps the Taliban needs to take to be welcomed into the community of civilized nations. And, and, and that was utter gobbledygook. They don't wanna be welcomed in the community of civilized nations. They are terrorists who want to murder us. I believe it was time for us to leave, but we should leave competently and effectively in a way that doesn't leave Americans behind, in a way that evacuates the Afghans who assisted us, in a way that has thorough vetting for the yeah. Afghans that were evacuating. All of that was done disastrously, and that weakness and incompetence, I think, emboldened there, our enemies. There was a report that was done within the Pentagon. The Army, I believe, did it, where they went back and they interviewed uh, a lot of the senior officials, and they all kind of acknowledged the same thing. Yeah, if we had the troop strength, we would have left out of Bagram, but they were left with no choice because the White House said, sorry, no, here is the number of troops you're allowed to yep. have, and that kept them only evacuating from Kabul, and we saw how that went. Yeah, no, it was a political mandate from the White House, reduce the troop strength before the evacuation. And it was, it was driven ju just by political mandates instead of actually having adults say, okay, how do we sensibly pull our forces out, pull right. Americans out, pull the Afghans out who assisted us? How do we do it in a way to protect those in harm's way and get them out of harm's way? And, and, and they, they were unable to do so remotely so competently. Senator, getting back to, to Ukraine, 
yeah. uh, and, and Russia. Now, President Trump wanted to include Russia into the G7. Is that something that you would have supported as well? No, no. Look, Russia is an enemy. Putin is a KGB thug. Uh, and I think we need to be clear-eyed about who we're dealing with. Putin wants to reassemble the Soviet Union. Actually, if you listen to the speech Putin gave several weeks ago, it was about an hour-long speech, and, and it's bone-chilling. Uh, where he laid out his vision, said he didn't just want to reassemble the Soviet Union, he wants to reassemble the Russian Empire of 1922, which not only under that basis justifies invading Ukraine, that justified invading Poland, that justifies invading Finland. I just finished meeting with the ambassador from Finland. I mean, I mean that Putin's desire, he longs for what he views as past Russian greatness. And I think Putin wants to be a modern day czar that's profoundly dangerous. Do you think he's capable? I mean, I wonder if he's learned any lessons. Clearly, he's not retreating from uh, Ukraine, but I wonder if he's learned any lessons from the invasion that that has gone on right now. You know, everyone was predicting to include to include close Russia watchers that Putin's invasion in Ukraine would be a relatively quick affair uh, and certainly a bloody one and an overwhelming one. But we've learned a lot. One is that the air presence uh, is not, from Russia has not been what was predicted. The cyber attacks have not been what was predicted. Uh, the army is getting stymied as a result of both the weather and the fierce fighting of the Ukrainians. Uh, and it makes it starts to make you think. Other than his nuclear weapons, what kind of military threat could he be to the rest of Europe? He's like incapable of even seizing the country that's right on his border. What happens if he try, like is he even capable of of seizing Poland, for instance? It doesn't seem possible. Well, look, you're right that this has gone militarily worse than than Putin anticipated, and also worse for Russia than than I think the American military projected. Um, I think that's due to due to several things. Number one, most significantly, just the resilience of the Ukrainian people that yeah. they're staying and fighting. Uh, that they're fighting heroically. You know, Zelensky, when the Biden administration offered to evacuate Zelensky, his response, I need ammunition, I don't need a ride. Uh, th that was powerful, that, 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 that was leadership. And I think you're seeing the Ukrainian people, you're seeing grandmothers throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, that's, that's potent. Um, there's no doubt under a traditional measure, Russia should win this war. Their military is stronger, they have more troops. They have more weapons, they have more advanced weapons. So, so on paper, Russia is a dominant favorite. That being said, historically, uh, people defending their homeland, there's a long history of, of people ferociously defending their homeland against invading armies, that, that, that there's a different motivation when you're defending, you're defending the land you love and the people you love and your family that, that, right. than when you're invading yeah. and conquering foreign lands. Um, I also think the S-300s, the anti-aircraft uh, defense systems that the Ukrainians have, have done a better than expected job at limiting Russia's control of airspace. That being said, we should be doing much more. And, and, and I think there are two things in particular that America should be doing that we're not doing sufficiently. Number one, providing offensive military equipment to the Ukrainians. We should be providing stingers and javelins, which the Biden administration is finally doing. It halted military assistance twice last year. In April and December, it halted military assistance 
in an effort to pressure Zelensky to give in to Putin. Uh, but we're finally providing stingers and javelins. Those have been very helpful. Those have been the stingers have been taking down Russian aircraft. The javelins have been taking out Russian tanks mm -hmm. uh, with with great efficacy. But we need to also be providing fighter jets. When we had the conference call with Zelensky two weeks ago, that was his number one ask is is fighter jets. Ukrainian pilots are ready to fly them, but they don't have sufficient jets to go head to head with the Russians. Uh, as you know, Poland has a number of MiGs, with, with, which the Russian, which the Ukrainian pilots are trained on. Poland has handed the MiGs over, but Biden won't give the MiGs to the Ukrainians. I think that's a serious mistake. We ought to be providing military equipment for Ukrainians to defend themselves. Can you help us understand? Can you help our audience understand why the pol why the Poles just can't give the MiGs to the Ukrainians? Why why does yeah. the United States need to be involved in that particular handoff? So what happened? Uh, is take this back a week or take this back two weeks. Two weeks ago, yeah. uh, Zelensky does a video conference call with, with all the members of Congress. And he says, my number one need, we ask him, what do you need? Um, it was actually striking. So the video conference call, it started off with Zelensky saying, this may be the last time you speak with me, the last time you hear with me, right. hear from me. And, and there's no doubt Putin wants him dead and is trying very hard. He asked everyone on the call, he said, please don't make it public till this call is over uh, because he didn't want his location revealed uh, and, and Putin to be able to target him. He said at the outset of the call, he said, if the United States had sanctioned Nord Stream 2 last year, this invasion would not have happened. He said that right. flat out to every member of Congress. But then we asked him, what do you need? What, what would make the biggest difference? And he said, what I need more than anything else is fighter jets. The Russians have air superiority. We need to be able to contest air superiority. Um, the obvious jets that make sense are MiGs because that's what the Ukrainian pilots are trained on. And, and you've got MiGs in a number of former Soviet bloc countries. Uh, Poland had a number of them. And so Poland was perfectly willing to, to allow the Ukrainians to use their MiGs. They were negotiating uh, with the Biden administration because they wanted the Biden administration to backfill with F-16s right. so that Poland would not be left defenseless. And so they were, they were negotiating back and forth with the Biden administration saying, would you give us F-16s so that we can have some air defenses? The Biden administration was playing a political game. What they were saying publicly is, you know, Poland is a sovereign country. It can decide whether or not to give the MiGs to Ukraine, we have no view, we don't care, we're ambivalent right. on it, it's up to Poland. I mean, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said straight up, that gets a green light, he said. So he, they, but, but he, got... he, wasn't, telling, he wasn't telling the truth, he was lying. And, mm -hmm. and the game they were playing, so they were slow walking the negotiations on the F-16s, they were saying it's, it's Poland's fault, yeah. but then what they were really doing is blaming Poland. When people said, why aren't the MiGs there? The Biden administration was saying, well, you know, the Poles, they just won't do anything. They're not willing to hand them over. Not our fault. It's just the Poles are being recalcitrant. And so Poland did something actually remarkable, which is it flew the MiGs to a U.S. Air Force base, said, here they are. You can have them right now. And it basically called Biden's bluff, said, here are the MiGs. We're fine with the Ukrainians having them. And within an hour or two, the Biden Department of Defense stood up and said, we won't give them to Ukraine. We have the MiGs. They're sitting here, but we won't give them to Ukraine. Now, let me be clear what should and shouldn't happen. 
What should not happen is U.S. pilots flying the MiGs to Ukraine. It's, it's one of the reasons I am adamantly opposed to a no-fly zone. We're seeing Zelensky's asking for a no-fly zone. I understand why he's asking for it. That, that makes sense from his perspective. Right. It doesn't make sense for us to agree to that. There are some Republicans and some Democrats already calling for a no-fly zone. I think that would be a, an enormous mistake. And the reason is, if you have a no-fly zone, you have American pilots and American fighter jets in the airspace there to deny Russian pilots access to the, to the airspace. You are inviting direct combats between Americans and Russia, uh, which, which has, I think, an enormous risk of escalation. Uh, so... I don't believe we should put U.S. servicemen and women in harm's way in this war. Uh, and so that means we shouldn't put American pilots in the MiGs to fly them to Ukraine. But what we should do is what the Ukrainians offer to do in, in Poland, which is allow them to send their pilots to pick up the planes and fly them back to Ukraine. And if the Ukrainian pilots are flying the MiGs back to Ukraine and Russian jets intercept yeah. them and they engage in combat, that's fine. They're in a war. They're shooting at each other already. Right. That would be the right decision. And it was Joe Biden who personally vetoed the MiGs going to Ukraine. And, and I think that was a, a big mistake. Yeah, I think, well, that's one area that we agree, Senator. Um, but I, I do have, before we turn to some domestic issues, I want to ask uh, what your opinion is of Trump when he was delaying and extorting uh, Zelensky uh, for military funding uh, at the end of his uh uh, administration. So look, I think Trump was was pressure, pressuring Zelensky to provide information that he had. Um, I think the impeachment based on it, it was not an impeachable offense. Um, if you actually look at the allegations of quid pro quo, the only person who really engaged in a quid pro quo was Joe Biden. And, and Biden, when he was vice president, explicitly uh, engaged in a quid pro quo and cut off military aid to Ukraine. And for that matter, Biden last year twice cut off military aid to Ukraine in April and December, in both instances, pressuring Ukraine to cede sovereignty over the Donbass region. Yeah. Uh, understood, understood, Senator. But I'm asking you uh, specifically about Donald Trump and his delaying and how you felt yeah, look, about that. Look, my views on Trump, uh, I don't like the rhetoric that Trump used with respect to Russia and, and Putin. Um, I don't like the rhetoric, particularly in Helsinki. I, I think it was an enormous mistake. Um, I don't know why Trump uh, fails to call out Putin for the vicious thug that he is. Um, I will say this though, even though I, I don't like Trump's rhetoric, and I said it at the time, I've said it many, many times since then, that, that, that we should be far clearer and, and more unequivocal in, in denouncing Putin and calling him out for who he is. If you look on the merits of the policy, on any measure, Trump's policies were far tougher on Russia than Joe Biden's were, or that for that matter, than Barack Obama's were. Um, if you look substantively, Trump signed my sanctions legislation on Nord Stream 2 into law. In fact, he did so twice. I passed one sanctions bill mm -hmm. in 2019, and then I passed a second one, an even tougher sanctions bill, in 2020. Trump signed both of those into law. Uh, 
As a result, Trump stopped Nord Stream 2. Putin didn't invade. You know, it was interesting probably, oh, I don't know, a month ago. Um, we were in a classified briefing, all 100 senators, and a Democratic senator stood up and asked Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said, why didn't Putin invade in 2017 or 2018 or 2019 or 2020? And, and I got to admit, I and several other senators began laughing because the answer was obvious, which is that Putin didn't want to mess with America and mess with Trump. I, I think Trump was a far more effective deterrent to Putin than Biden was. And, and Biden, unfortunately, the philosophy of this administration on foreign policy, if you look at every enemy on earth, they, they, they govern from, from a perspective of weakness and appeasement. And whether it is Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela, we see this administration making concessions, uh, trying to give billions of dollars to our enemies. And, and, and if history teaches anything, it's that appeasement invites military conflict. I mean, so, do you sure. want to, I was going to shift I, over. I was going to shift yeah, over to come Damascus. Back, Jason. Jason okay. you, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, the only thing that that I, I was going to say, and I and I'll turn it over to Vince. But the only thing I was going to say is that many many people would argue that Trump that this invasion didn't happen because uh, Russia was getting a lot of what it already wanted, which was to weaken NATO. Uh, you know, which NATO, of course, Donald Trump during the the uh, the primaries that you were a part of. Donald Trump questioned NATO and its and its uh, relevance altogether. So all of the things that uh, Putin says that he wants, they were already kind of getting that out of out of Donald Trump. But I'll turn it over to Vince. Well, let me jump in. Let me jump in and make the that, point because yeah. it's important. You're right that there are people making that argument mm -hmm. um, who are Democratic partisans, but but it's not an argument that has any force on the face of it. If you actually look at Trump. Look, I agree with you. I don't like Trump's rhetoric when it came to Russia. And I actually think some of it is that he just got sort of stubborn when people began criticizing him for it. He's like, all right, screw you. I'm not going to change it. I, I wish he had changed his rhetoric. But if you actually look at NATO, NATO was stronger and Trump strengthened NATO. Yeah. Why? Because he went over and he demanded of European nations, increase your contributions to defense. And he said, you know what? We're not going to defend you unless you invest more in defense. And for a long time, NATO had encouraged free riding where basically European nations funded their welfare state and didn't invest at all in the military defending themselves and counted on the US military to defend them. And right. Trump went and said, look, if you want us to stand with you, step up to the plate and actually invest in defending yourself as well. That was the right thing to do. And it changed the entire dynamic of NATO. You saw multiple yeah. European countries significantly increased military spending in response to what Trump did. So if you actually look objectively at policy results, Trump strengthened NATO and stood up to Russia. So the argument yeah. that Russia got what it wants, it's a great talking point. Yeah. But it's I, I, garbage. And by the way, do you know who disagrees with it? President Zelensky who explicitly said at the time, Ukraine disagrees with that political talking point. Poland disagrees with that political talking point. Yeah. Go I think there, a statement put there, out by the foreign ministers of both Ukraine and Poland mm -hmm. when Joe Biden waived sanctions on Russia and waived sanctions on Putin and greenlit 
Nord Stream 2, both Ukraine and Poland said, this will cause Putin to invade Ukraine. And so I, I don't think there's any remotely, you know, when you say Trump gave Russia what he, what, what he wanted, what Russia wanted was Nord Stream 2. And Trump said, no, we're shutting it down. And he mm -hmm. succeeded. It was my bill. But if you actually look at the substance, it's not even close. Yeah. So yeah. Um, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I, well, I disagree. I, I don't want to take up too much time on this point, but I, well, I think we could we could debate that for a while. But go ahead. I'll, Can I'll I ask add... you something, Jason? I, actually, I'm curious. Uh -huh. Point to one policy decision Trump made that benefited Russia. And you can't say the rhetoric because I'm, I'm conceding the rhetoric. OK, so Point you can one substantive policy decision. So you, you concede the rhetoric, which is yeah, I don't an, like the rhetoric. which is an important point. You know, of course, uh, we already talked about uh, extorting Zelensky. We already uh, talked about, you know, I, I do uh, agree with you on some level with NATO. I don't think he strengthened NATO. I think that's false. I think NATO has never been stronger than it is right now under President Biden. So we're we're gonna we're gonna disagree. <laughs> There. Okay, let me uh, let me jump in. I want to add one log to this fire that that I think Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, has accurately built, in my view, okay, which is ahead. that the UN, the NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, has never shut up about how grateful he is to Trump for strengthening NATO. He like constantly talks about how all these countries increased funding as a result of his pressure. There's video. I, I think Trump if you talk to a lot of the other members of NATO, they disagree with that. You know, if you were to talk to Germany, or you would talk to. You know, many so, of the so other with respect, the nations Jason, in the UK, they, they would disagree with that. I, I think we do need to get to domestic issues, but unless you're going to be and, here for two hours, which I'm totally yeah, cool and, with. And let, me, let me actually, a good segue from foreign policy to domestic issues. As I said, there are two things we should be doing mm -hmm. to defeat Russia and Ukraine. The first is military weaponry. Mm -hmm. The second is energy. And, and mm -hmm. Russia, you know, John McCain had a great saying. He said, he said, Russia is a gas station with a country attached. And, and, and <laughs> there is an enormous amount of truth to that. Putin is a petro tyrant. And Putin believes that Europe is addicted to Russian oil and gas and that he can do whatever he wants and Europe will keep buying his oil and gas. If you yeah. want to defeat Russia, if you want to win, the best way to do so is take away his customers, is, is go to Europe, and get Europe to cancel their contracts, stop buying Russian oil, stop buying natural gas. Now, yes. they're not willing to just shut down their economy. That's not a reasonable ask. The only way they can do that is if we replace the oil and gas. And the number one producer of oil and gas in the world is the United States. And, and right. the, if you want to undermine Putin, if you want to actually weaken him, uh, what what we should be doing is dramatically ramping up production of oil and gas in the United States, which is the number one producer in the world, mm -hmm. and, and pushing Europe to buy from America or buy from our allies. And unfortunately, the Biden administration is unwilling to do that. They have waged war on U.S. energy production. And even now, so, so at the State of the Union address a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I went afterwards and spoke with Tony Blinken and I said, look, Tony, if you want if you want to hurt Putin right now, there are pending before the Biden administration six applications to export liquid natural gas. Tomorrow, Biden should go on national television and authorize all six. And if we step in 
if, if Putin sees European nations start signing long-term contracts with American producers or with our allies who are producers, yeah. nothing will weaken him more politically at home and nothing will do more to, to cut off the revenue that is funding his war machine. And that, and that would instantly have impact on the futures markets too for energy because then people would yes. say, okay, look, there's a surefire uh, available supply of American energy on the way. You know, if you go back in time and you look at uh, Putin's invasions over this last these last two decades, uh, they have always synced up with when energy was at its most expensive. His invasion into Georgia in 2008, his invasion into Crimea, his invasion broadly now into Ukraine. It's all when energy has spiked at its highest price, meaning he's got the most leverage to be able to prosecute these wars. So we need to disable him in that way. Uh, and there's one other element here that I think doesn't come up enough, but I, I just am curious if you agree, I suspect you do, which is European allies, although we would like them to buy American energy, have been disabling their own energy production anyway. Germany has been uh, very- absolutely, Very much knocking out all of its nuclear plants. They did yep. three last year. They're trying to do three more this year. Uh, and then turning to alternative sources like wind, which have been a failure in Germany. Uh, you know, I wish it worked. It, it's just not working. Sh should the United States be putting pressure on Europe to increase its its own domestic energy supply, including and especially from from nuclear plants? Uh, look, uh, of course, we should be encouraging every step that weans Europe from Russian oil and gas that yeah. stops the revenue stream that is giving billions of dollars to Putin to fund his his invasion, to fund his military aggression. And, you know, one important thing to understand, the Biden administration's deep-seated antipathy to American oil and gas is not actually fueled by the environment. Um, let's assume, for sake of argument, that the only issue you cared about was the environment. Let's assume you don't care about jobs. Let's assume you don't care about inflation. You don't care about anything else. All you care about is the environment. You're a one-issue one voter. Right. On the environment, the Biden administration has been a monumental failure. First day in office, Joe Biden cancels the Keystone Pipeline. Shortly thereafter, he shuts down new leases on federal lands, both onshore and offshore. Shortly thereafter, he shuts down new development on Anwar, a very small region of Alaska, incredibly rich petroleum deposits. What's the effect of that? Well, Keystone, he immediately destroys 11,000 jobs, but it's not like the Canadians are simply leaving the oil in the tar sands. They're continuing to develop that oil, but now they're putting it on trucks and trains and sending it south to the United States, or they're putting it on ships and sending it west to China. In both instances, there is more pollution, more carbon emissions, and both means of transport are much greater risks of spill. Spill. So by any measure, the environment is worse. Uh, take a look at all of the efforts Biden has done to shut down U.S. energy production. We've seen the rig count go down. And as a result, we had been, under President Trump, energy independent and a net energy exporter. Last year, we lost that status and became a net energy importer. Mm -hmm. And the result of shifting production from American production to overseas production, overseas production is much dirtier. So you get more pollution, more CO2 emissions. Yeah. So if the only thing you care about the environment is the environment, 
Biden has been a disaster and, and, and few things capture that more effectively than the fact that in the last two weeks, Biden has been sending emissaries to Venezuela, begging Maduro to sell us more oil and is in Vienna negotiating with Iran, begging the Ayatollah to sell us more oil because yeah. this administration wants to give billions of dollars to our enemies rather than produce oil and gas here at home. It makes zero sense. Can, can I add one fact that I just learned about Keystone? I didn't know about this. I was talking to Congressman Matt Rosendale of Montana the other day, and Good he was friend. telling me that American uh, oil production would actually go into Keystone as well, that from Montana and North Dakota, that light crude oil would have been added to the Keystone pipeline. So American energy producers yeah. would have been able to export oil via sure. the Keystone pipeline in addition to the Canadian tar sands. I right. didn't realize that. And that's yet another yet another reason why we should probably have Keystone. Of course. Well, and by so, the way, when it comes to energy infrastructure, the Democratic Party, look, when, when it, they hate oil and gas, it's not yeah. rational. Can, it's not. Can I, can, it, can I interrupt in. re, re, really yeah. quickly? Because I, I just had to fact check something. And, uh, you know, under Trump, we were we continued to bring in Russian oil. We were still importing Russian oil. And as a matter of fact, it increased every year. So 137 million bar barrels of Russian oil in 2018, 189 uh, million barrels in 2019 and 100 and close to uh, 200 million barrels in 2020, a year where we were locked down and no one was driving. So there we still we were always importing oil. So this idea that all of a sudden we've started importing oil and we've been in energy independent, we're still energy independent, nope. meaning we produce that. Nope, nope. OK, go ahead. So, go ahead. so you are right that we were importing Russian oil. We were doing and increasing that for, every year under the under the Trump administration. OK, but uh, starting in 2019, we became energy independent, which meant the United States produced more oil and gas than we consumed. Right now, a substantial chunk of it we exported. And we did import some oil, but if you netted it out, we were producing more than we consumed. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we imported Russian oil and Russian gas is because Democrats won't allow uh, natural gas pipelines to be built. So, for example, the Northeast, you look at you, you look at Boston, Massachusetts. Um, it gets cold in Boston. I know I lived there three years in law school. It gets really cold in the wintertime. <laughs> it does. Um, there are vast natural gas reserves in Pennsylvania. The Marcellus Shale is producing massive amounts of natural gas. Mm -hmm. It would be very easy to take that natural gas from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts to heat the homes of people in Massachusetts. Here's the problem. The idiot politicians in New York don't want any jobs for New Yorkers, so they don't allow New York to develop the Marcellus Shale. Their, their Marcellus Shale is under New York as well as Pennsylvania, but there are no energy jobs there because New York prevents the, the development of it. But not only that, New York has for years been blocking a natural gas pipeline from transversing New York to get to Boston. Yeah. As a result, Massachusetts imports a ton of Russian oil and Russian gas to, he to heat the homes and power them instead of using American reserves because the Democrats in New York won't allow a pipeline to be constructed. It, it's the same problem okay. as Keystone. Right. And, and, by, and, and it's bizarre. Explain to me, Jason, why is it that Democrats shut down pipelines in America, but green light Russian pipelines 
that 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 put billions in Putin's pocket. That that makes no sense to me. So my point was that we are still a net exporter in 2021 that, under that, the Biden not, administration. Right. That that is that's simply inaccurate. Okay, we, so we are I'll show you we my are producing less. So net my source net is, is Forbes here. So, go ahead, so we go ahead. are producing less oil and gas than we are consuming in 2021. And it was the first time in three years that was the case. Well, let me I want to make sure because now we're, we're getting we're running out of time with the senator. So I just want to ask I want to shift to, to a big domestic issue that you're going to face next week. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kadanji uh, Brown Jackson uh, yeah. is set to come before your committee, the Judiciary Committee. Uh, it is this is a pick that will not change as the media likes to refer to it as the ideological balance of the court. It, the, uh, but, you know, these Supreme Court hearings have the capacity definitely to get contentious. How do you predict it going next week? And in particular, is there can you give us a sense of of the area of inquiry that you'd like yeah. to dwell as uh, Judge Brown Jackson comes before your committee? So, so let me start with the premise that, that this pick would not change the ideological balance of the court. I, I'm not convinced that's right at all. Um, if you look at Steve Breyer, um, Steve Breyer has been a liberal, but he hasn't been the most extreme liberal on the court. Uh, Breyer occasionally votes on the other side. And I'll give an example, a case I litigated. So, you know, before I was in the Senate, my career uh, was litigating before the U.S. Supreme Court. And a number of cases that I argued before the court, uh, our necessary fifth vote we picked up uh, came from a liberal justice. Uh, one of the bigger cases that I litigated before the court was a case called Van Orden versus Texas, which was a challenge to the Ten Commandments monument on the state capitol grounds in Texas. Right. And an atheist had challenged the Ten Commandments monument, argued you couldn't display it on public grounds. We took the case to the Supreme Court and, and ended up winning 5-4. Um, in my brief, every argument in the brief was directed to try to get Sandra Day O'Connor's vote. Um, and all of those arguments that I thought were, were perfectly aligned, this is something I wrote, the last book I wrote is a book called One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat can change history. And in one vote away, I tell the war stories, the inside stories of litigating these cases. And I describe how in Van Orden versus Texas, my team, I said, all right, I want the most common words in our brief to be O'Connor comma J. Uh, uh -huh. I want those to be more common than and or the. Um, and I remember one of my lawyers said, uh, well, was it possible to be too obsequious to Saturday <laughs> O'Connor? I said, no, if we can put an oil painting of Justice O'Connor and the cover of the brief, I think that would be an excellent idea. <laughs> and I, I told my boss, Greg Abbott, he was the attorney general. I, I said, look, we are, we are mind melding with Sandra Day O'Connor. We are getting in every word she has ever written about the establishment clause. Right. Well, every argument I directed at O'Connor failed, it missed, and O'Connor voted to tear down the Ten Commandments monument. But somehow all the arguments directed at, at O'Connor hit Breyer and Breyer was our necessary fifth vote. And so we won 5-4 because Steve Breyer voted with us. Right. Um, it is certainly possible to change the ideological balance if, if Katanji Brown-Jackson ends up being markedly to the left of Steve Breyer. And I think we, that's one of the things the hearings next week hopefully will, will endeavor to uncover. Okay, so yeah, I was, I was wondering about that because what I've read about uh, Judge 
uh, Brown Jackson is that most of her cases uh, have not dealt with hot button issues. They've dealt more with technical issues. Uh, and so I, I'm wondering, you know, you do acknowledge that she is qualified and she also clerked for Judge Breyer. So yep. she would have some sort of ideological uh, and judicial alignment with Judge Breyer, no? Sure. Look, she, she, she is plainly a person from the left. I, I've actually known Katanji for a long time. We were law school classmates. She, she was a year behind me uh, at Harvard Law School. She, we were both on the law review together. Um, I, I've known her a long time. She is personally, she's very nice. She's very charming. She's very bright. Um, you know, I expect the hearing next week. What won't happen is you will not see a political circus. You won't see Republicans behaving like Democrats did with Justice Kavanaugh. You won't see Republicans going into the gutter, engaging in personal attacks and in character attacks. Um, I, I think what they did to Justice Kavanaugh was disgraceful. Um, what you will see, hopefully, is senators examining her record and, and, and vigorously examining her record and examining uh, the, the indicia of, of what kind of justice she would be, how she would interpret the Constitution, and in particular, how she would, would defend our fundamental rights, whether they're free speech or religious liberty or the Second Amendment. Um, and and I, you know, I, I expect a, a, a vigorous assessment. You know, as you guys know, I do a podcast every week called Verdict with Ted Cruz, and we did a long podcast going through some of the background uh, of Judge Jackson. Um, and one of the things I discussed on, on the Verdict podcast is I said, look, her record, she was nominated to the DC Circuit. And, and I can tell you in that hearing, um, her record was hard to get a handle on. Um, she, she in some ways reminds me uh, of Chief Justice John Roberts, who's someone also I've known 25 years and, and John is a friend. Um, John lived his whole life very, very careful, not saying anything that could be used to defeat his Supreme Court nomination. And I think Katanji similarly has been careful in what she has said not to have a public record uh, that that would be would leave her vulnerable in a confirmation. We'll see yeah. how the hearings I go, mean, but I expect a thorough examination of, of her record and, and, and what kind of judge she'd be. Well, she's been supported by people like Jonathan Turley, who I, th I think we all respect, uh, Don McGahn, uh, conservative judge Michael Ludig. They've all kind of supported uh, Katanji or Judge uh, Brown Jackson. I, I want to also, since we're talking about the court and you are someone who's had experience with the court, um, I do want to ask, uh, given what we know about uh, Judge Thomas, and particularly his wife and her political activism. Should Judge Thomas recuse himself from cases that have to do with Trump? No, of course not. Um, and, and listen. Okay. We, we had Alan Dershowitz on here and he, he said yes. He said yes and he said also that, uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have recused herself as well. But- uh, Oh, listen. And by the way, Dersh is, he was a law school professor of mine. He's a good friend. I, I think very highly uh, of Alan, but, but Alan is a liberal. He's a liberal Democrat. I, in fact, I remember in criminal But not law, judicially, not judicially, like his, yeah, his judicial philosophy. Yeah, of course philosophy. he is judicially. No. So, so Jason, look, look, I, I mean, he was a professor of mine 
and, sure. and we're good friends, but he, he started first year criminal law by standing up and saying, listen, by any objective measure, this is Alan Dershowitz speaking, he said, I am in the most liberal 1% of Americans in this country. But he said on the Harvard Law faculty, I actually have some conservative views because I believe, for example, in free speech. Alan is an old style liberal. So today's left has decided, let's say at an issue of free speech, they want to censor anyone who disagrees with them. They want okay. to silence anyone who disagrees with them. And so Alan disagrees with, for example, Larry Tribe, who advocates censorship. And Alan and, and, and Tribe have gone back and forth on that for decades. But but let's be clear, Dersh is still a very liberal Democrat, the, the, but he is a civil libertarian. And, and what's bizarre, so in the age of Trump, Democrats abandoned civil liberties. They hated Trump so much that they're just like, destroy the man and, and to hell with civil liberties, let's go after him. And, and Dershowitz pressed back on that. Listen, Justice Thomas is an extraordinary justice. He's someone who I've known a long time. He is a brilliant jurist. I'm not, I'm not debating he, that. I'm the, just debating, the does he have a conflict? Venom, the venom from the left directed at Justice Thomas is qualitatively different from any justice on the Supreme Court. You know, you compare Justice Thomas to Justice Scalia. Scalia, incredibly conservative, incredibly brilliant, and yet didn't attract the venom. The left views Justice Thomas as a traitor to his race. As a black man, the left views that he is not allowed to be a conservative. They, you, you look at the, the, um, the invective, the insults that are directed at Justice Thomas, they're, they're vile and offensive. Um, but, but again, and, and, and Senator Cruz, I hate to cut you guy, off. I, I understand the, the, the left doesn't think I can be a conservative either. I understand. Yeah, but, but Senator Cruz, you're, I, 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 I'm not necessarily arguing against the things that you're saying now. What I'm saying is I'm talking about his conflicts here. His, his wife being a conservative activist, her going to, Janu to the January 6th, uh, whatever that was, and, you know, that her being very much uh, involved in funding pro-Trump, uh, you know, uh, entities. Is there a conflict if he is a jurist on cases that have to do with Donald Trump? That's all I'm Jenny, asking. I'm not asking and, about and, how the and left the, feels and about And the answer is no. Jenny Thomas is not a Supreme Court justice. If Jenny was a Supreme Court justice, yes, there would be a conflict. But Justice Thomas is but not. And let's be clear. She talks clear. to his clerks. She, she has a, a direct line to his, his clerks. That's okay. been established. And, 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 and every justice, their clerks. And she, she admonishes them for, for anything that they, she thinks is anti-Trump. So every Democrat Supreme Court appointee mm -hmm. was a partisan Democrat. Steve Breyer was a partisan Democrat. He was a Democrat Hill staffer, a Democratic Harvard Law professor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a partisan Democrat. She was the general counsel of the ACLU. Elena Kagan was a partisan Democrat. She served in the, in the Bill Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. Sonia Sotomayor is a deeply partisan Democrat who has repeatedly unleashed anti-Trump venom and, and partisan rhetoric while a Supreme Court justice. And so I, I actually think the hypocrisy of the left of saying, you know, Justice Thomas actually doesn't do that. So his wife has political views. His wife is not a justice. He is. And, and, and there is a, a double standard that, 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 you know, nobody on the left thinks that these partisan Democrats 
should yeah, recuse themselves no, and they no, shouldn't. No one that's- is no one is saying, for example, you know, Judge, uh, I mean, uh, former President Trump absolutely uh, brought, uh, you know, three justices in, Gorsuch. No one's saying Gorsuch should recuse himself. No one is saying that Kavanaugh should recuse himself. No one is saying that ACB should recuse herself. This is about Justice Thomas. And we're talking about Justice Thomas and not about his race or anything like that. We're talking about his connections to- Why is there a different standard wildly, for Justice Thomas than wildly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Wildly partisan entities, particularly with his wife, who, by the way, involves herself with his clerks and, and staff. Like, so look, the relationship between judge and clerk um, is a very close, familiar relationship. And that, and that is common. Uh, and that includes spouses. That, that, that is often the case. And by the way, you want to talk about clerks. So here's a reality. This was true when I was clerking. That, that at the time I was clerking, virtually every conservative justice would hire liberal clerks. None of the liberal justices would hire conservative clerks. And, and it was a consistent pattern. So Scalia every year, Scalia would hire a liberal. They were called the Scalia liberal. Mm-hmm. And, and they would end up, they were, they were very liberal and they'd end up all being law professors and they'd spend the next 30 or 40 years bashing Justice Scalia. You were talking about Dersh as, as, as a conservative. I can tell you why he and I became friends. We would become friends because w- w- when he was teaching criminal law, he would get up and just blast decisions, opinions written by Justice Scalia by Justice Thomas, by Chief Justice Rehnquist. And, and I'd be sitting in class and, and, and I often tried to restrain myself and not, not speak a lot in class and Dersh would piss me off. Then I'd stand up and say, well, hold on a second. And we'd get in an argument. And I will say to Alan's credit, he loves someone who argues with him. He, his eyes would light up and he <laughs> likes to, we'd go back to his office and argue for hours, but, but yeah. you cannot call Dersh a judicial conservative yeah, no, no, I, did, I didn't call him form. that, though. I didn't call him that. I said he he's not a liberal, you <laughs> know, know, a liberal jurist or a liberal, uh, you know, his judicial philosophy isn't liberal. You said he's a yes, civil it libertarian. It's, it's massively he's, liberal. He loves No, you William said he's Brennan. a civil he libertarian, and I agree with you. He, he, he oh, loves you. black men. And, he, 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 and, let, me, let me just and, say and this. I, Here's okay. what I know. Here's what I know about Alan Dershowitz. He's not a Democrat in good standing because he still likes Ted Cruz. So that's so so for, for <laughs> now enough, enough. For, for now well, we know that. Hey, so I, let me let me ask one one other question because he brought up free speech. Just real quick, Vince. Go for it, man. Um, so you talked about free speech and the First Amendment, and you know, of course, Vince and I are, are big fans of of the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, you also uh, big fan, big fan. Uh, you, you also co-sponsored the Anti-Israel Boycott Act, which criminalized boycotting Israel and Israeli settlements, uh, regardless of how anyone feels about Israel or Israeli set- settlements. Isn't that a violation of the First Amendment when you start criminalizing boycotts? Do you believe that political voices should be silenced by the federal government? So I, I don't believe you're accurate that, that I've sponsored anything that criminalizes BDS. I think BDS is a vicious and, sure. and offensive movement. Absolutely. Uh, disagree but, with it all you want. I'm my fear. But, 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 I, but I, I don't believe, I don't believe I've, I've sponsored anything that criminalizes it. Now, I would cut off government funds for it. But, but there's a difference uh, but between that. I don't think we, we have to fund it. I don't think the government has an obligation to, to pay for vicious anti-Semitic movements. But, but 
Look, I am a passionate defender of the First Amendment, and I defend people who attack me nonstop. I, I defend the left's rights of free speech. And, 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 I, and I will say this, Jason, one of the frustrating things, there used to be a really vibrant uh, liberal tradition of defending free speech. Uh, you know, one of the seminal free speech cases at the Supreme Court uh, is a case where you had a guy that was was wearing a jacket that said F the draft, although he didn't just have F, he spelled it out. Um, and the court upheld his right to wear that that jacket and, and to express his views. Um, what I find deeply disturbing is today's Democratic Party has abandoned that tradition. And, and a story, so, so I've got in my book, One Vote Away, I have a whole speech, a whole chapter on free speech, and, and I describe in detail in 2014 the effort of Democrats to amend the Bill of Rights and, and to repeal the free speech protections of the First Amendment. And, and in particular, so in 2014, Democrats introduced a constitutional amendment. The first version of the amendment uh, gave Congress plenary power, blanket power to regulate any and all political speech that involved in any way, shape or form the expenditure of money. Uh, under that bill, it meant that Congress could make it a criminal offense for a little old lady to go down to Home Depot, buy a stick at a poster board and, and put up a sign that says vote for Joe Biden or vote for Donald Trump. Congress could make that a political offense if she spent $5 on a poster board. Congress could also make it a criminal offense for a union organizer to organize people in unions if they spend even a dollar doing so. It was grotesque. It was so bad that actually Democrats abandoned that and they moved to a second version, which gave Congress blanket power to regulate political speech, but only of corporations. So the first version included individuals, it included the little old lady. Democrats realized that was untenable. So they moved to the second version that said Congress has blanket power to regulate political speech of corporations. I was the ranking member on the, on the Constitution Subcommittee, the Senate Judiciary Committee. I asked a series of questions. Under this, should Congress have the power to ban books? Should Congress have the power to ban movies? Should Congress have the power to ban the NAACP from speaking about politics? Those are the three questions I asked in the hearing. Now, my answers to those three are no, no, and hell no. Under the Democrats' amendment, Congress would have blanket power. Simon & Schuster is a corporation. Under the Democrats' amendment, Congress could pass a law that says it will be a criminal offense for Simon & Schuster to publish any book critical of Donald J. Trump. That would be constitutionally permissible for Congress to pass that. That's insane. Um, the NAACP is a corporation. Under the Democrats' amendment, Congress could pass a bill saying the NAACP must publicly disclose every donor and it cannot speak on any issue of public policy subject to imprisonment if they do. Mm. That is insane. We had a vote, Jason, on the floor of the Senate. I gave an impassioned floor speech. I had a picture of Ted Kennedy next to me because Democrats had previously tried to do something similar. Ted Kennedy said, we haven't amended the Bill of Rights in 200 years and now is no time to start. I had Ted Kennedy's picture with that quote next to me and I called out, isn't there one Democrat who believes in free speech? We voted on the Democrats' amendment to repeal the free speech protection of the First Amendment. Do you know how many Democrats voted to keep the First Amendment as is? 
Zero. Not a single one. Every single Democrat voted to repeal the free speech protections of the First Amendment. So, Senator Cruz, uh, we've got it. We've got to wrap up. But I will say this, you know, um, speaking of, you know, civil libertarian politics, um, I think that when you start saying that uh, the government will not fund you if you have a particular political view, what does that happen if someone, say, is against a war and then the government decides we don't want to give you Social Security? You know, I think that there that's a that's a slippery slope that I think you're working with with the the anti BDS stuff. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. You know, I, I understand both both sides, why they agree and why they disagree. But what I will say is that it is a slippery slope saying we are not going to fund anything that disagrees because we have a particular political view. I think that that's a dangerous place to be. But. Thank you so much. We definitely want to thank you for, for coming on here. It was a lot of fun. I hope one day you and I can play one-on-one -on -one basketball. Uh, I'd like to play you. And uh, You're welcome to play, although I'll say you look like a pretty tall guy, so, so you may well take me to the hole. I, I, I don't know that, but just, uh, just looking online, you look pretty tall. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm about 6'2", six, 6'1", six, six, so not yeah. super tall. All right. Well, we look. We'll, we'll, we'll come play with us. We, we we play every week. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. He's gonna Thank take you, you so up much, on that. Senator. Thank you very much, Senator. Appreciate the time. Take care. Thank you.